The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing, turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Continue to make our way through this book. We're in chapter 2. And this evening we will look at all 25 verses, the entire chapter, so let's Give careful attention and worship the Lord in the way that we do so. Exodus chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1 to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months when she could, no, when she could hide him no longer She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter And he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. 
Father, we do bless you and praise you for your word, which comes to us again this evening. We pray, Lord God, that as we hear it, you might grant that we would indeed do so with the blessing of your Holy Spirit working in our midst. Father, would you open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see, that we might trust, that we might treasure more deeply and follow more faithfully the precious Savior therein revealed, even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you may recall last time we concluded the first chapter and we left off with the the command, the decree of Pharaoh that all of the Hebrew babies be cast into the Nile River. It was like Pharaoh had set out to destroy the people of Israel, all of them, drowning them in water. And you may recall that that Matthew, Matthew Ezel gave us that very edifying thought, the thought of the Lord laughing at such a notion, knowing that, in fact, it would not be long before the Lord would be the one saving his people while destroying their enemies in the waters of judgment, right? Even at the Red Sea. Laughter, what an edifying thought. Well, as we conclude chapter 2 this evening, I would submit to you that laughter is not the only emotional response of the Lord to the suffering of his people. We also see the Lord's abundant compassion. Twice we see that word groaning. Israel was groaning in their slavery. But what do we read? We read that the Lord heard. So the end of verse 23 tells us that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24 tells us that God heard their groaning. The Lord heard, and surely he would answer that cry. And I think that truth, the compassion of God, he hears, he will answer. That's what really everything we see before us in this chapter is all about this evening. You know, the chapter contains kind of three separate. It's verses 1 through 10, 11 through 22, and then 23 through 25. We really could have taken each of those separately and had three separate sermons, but we want to keep this series moving along somewhat. But notice the way it's, it's connected together and that twice in Moses' infancy, as well as his adulthood, we see the Lord preserving and delivering the life of Moses from the murderous intent of Pharaoh preserving and delivering. That should sound familiar. That kind of captures the message of the book of Exodus. The Lord preserves and he delivers his people with whom he has purposed to dwell. Well, we see that that deliverance will come from the hand of this one Moses, this one whom the Lord is raising up as his deliverer. All of this, of course, in fulfillment of his covenant promises. Our message this evening is this. That in his his early infancy and later exile, the Lord was preparing Moses as his instrument of redemption in fulfillment of his covenant. And we'll look at that by looking at each of these three sections for our three main points this evening. So note in the first section then, our first point, we see Moses' miracle preservation in infancy. There was groaning. Groaning indeed, and you sisters who have gone through that experience of delivering children, you know groaning in ways that we men never will. There's much groaning connected to childbirth. Well, imagine how that pain, that groaning, was only compounded for those Hebrew mothers in the days 
of Moses in Egypt there, to think of, uh, of carrying in the womb that precious life, knowing that you'll only give birth, only to have that child then delivered over to destruction, thrown into the waters of the Nile. What vanity, how unimaginably sad, what groaning indeed. But here God was hearing, wasn't he? He was hearing that groaning. And it's because God was already hearing that he provided this miracle baby. What an amazing thing God did. Note verse. Note that verse 1 makes it clear that Moses was a Levite, both sides, father and mother. As such, he was unquestionably qualified to play that important priestly role he would play for Israel, bridging the gap between the sinful people and the holy God. Levi was also the tribe which supplied most of Israel's court judges. It's interesting, isn't it, how right at the center of our text we see the, the, the uh, quarreling Israelite challenging Moses with that question, who made you to be prince and judge over us? How ironic. We'll get to chapter 18 and we'll see that the people will just wear Moses out with their coming to him again and again to settle all of their disputes. But even now our text screams the answer, God was raising Moses up to be a judge, to be a prince, to be a judge, to be so much more. God was raising up his instrument of deliverance for his people. And even at his birth, it seems that that even his appearance gave his mother a sense of such hope. What was it about this baby? Was it his good looks or just he seemed so healthy? Verse 2 says in the ESV that, that she saw that he was a fine child. Literally, she saw that he was good. The very same word used in Genesis chapter 1 when we read of God looking upon his creation and seeing that it was very good. As one commentator says, it seems the mother of Moses looked upon her child with a joy similar to that of God looking upon his good creation. It's interesting to uh, note what the New Testament says looking back on this verse. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23 says that Moses' parents saw that the child was beautiful and so they were not afraid of the king's edict. Stephen in, in that Acts chapter 7 martyrdom speech said that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. So here was Israel, just imagine it, groaning amidst all of the evil, the ugliness, the death. But here, with the birth of this baby, with the birth of Moses, his own mother was able to see something of of, of the good, beautiful thing which God was doing. One beautiful thing we note here is the prominent role which women play in these events. Women, of course, are are never ever to be seen as something of second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, not at all. In this narrative, it's the women who show themselves to be the great, wonderfully useful servants of the Lord. Last time, it was the noble Hebrew midwives, you remember. Well, here it's Moses' mother, sister, even Pharaoh's daughter. I'm not claiming to speak to the state of her soul, but it's amazing the way the Lord used even her. But, but, but notice that we read about Moses' mother courageously willing to defy Pharaoh's wicked decree by hiding the baby for three months. Three months. What must that have been like, right? And then when the hiding became impossible, she did at that point kind of obey the decree of Pharaoh and taking and throwing the 
the, the, the baby into the Nile, and in some sense, at least perhaps one might have seen it that way. She could have, could have claimed that what she done, had done was constructed a coffin for this baby to send him to his death. But out of death, the Lord is the one who would bring life. Indeed, what she constructed was a miniature ark. The word basket is the Hebrew tebah. Its only other use in the the Bible is with reference to Noah's ark. I don't know if Moses' mother understood all this, but through her actions, clearly the Lord had purposed to do something great, something like he had done way back in the days of Noah. He would reveal his great salvation of his people, salvation out of the waters of death. God, indeed, had a great plan for this baby. And so, safe, shut inside that ark, he floated among the reeds of the riverbank. And how amazing. In God's providence, who finds him? The daughter of the very one who had ordered his destruction. Pharaoh's daughter. Note the way she herself stands in such stark contrast to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is cruel. Pharaoh is bloodthirsty. But the compassionate Lord, the God of Israel, is able, able to counter that cruelty by working his compassion even through the, the daughter of Pharaoh, making her an instrument of his compassion. The Lord hears the cry of his people. She hears the cry of this little baby. We read in verse 6 that she took pity even as she noted, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And so she too was willing to defy the decree of Pharaoh and save the baby's life, cared for him. What wonderful provision. She even ends up paying his own mother to to nurse him and care for him. But note again, the text is unmistakably clear about Moses' origin. On the one hand, he is a true Hebrew of the tribe of Levi, born of and even nursed by and cared for by his true Hebrew Levite mother, and yet also important to the story, he truly became the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Verse 10 makes that clear, doesn't it? When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. As, uh, regarding the significance of this name, Moses, as Dr. Morales rightly points out, his salvation out of the waters here's with some, here was something of a prophetic sign of his future role in, in drawing Israel out of the waters of the sea, the Red Sea. And on that note, one last thing I'll mention here for our first point is the important role played by this baby boy's sister, in the narrative. We, of course, later learn that that's Miriam, right? Note in verse 4 that as he was placed in the water, she's the one who stood at a distance to see what would become or what would be done to him. Uh, Morales, I think, rightly suggests that this will be echoed when Pharaoh's army pursues Israel with, with bloodthirsty vengeance. Remember, Pharaoh and his army chasing down uh, the people of Israel. And what does the Lord say? And Moses says, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And so here Miriam was given something of a foretaste of that, given to stand and see the salvation of of the Lord, and in verse seven, we see that she was even even courageous enough to go and speak to the daughter of Pharaoh and to offer to go and call a nurse 
for her from among the Hebrew women. Uh, Miriam was a, a witness to the great work that the Lord was already doing in saving Moses, and yes, even in his infancy, preparing him to be the Lord's instrument of redemption, of deliverance. But not only in his infancy, God was also doing so, as we see, secondly, in his preservation and flight to Midian. So as we look at the second section of our text, verses 11 through 22, we've kind of fast-tracked all the way to Moses' adulthood. Uh, Exodus doesn't tell us how much time has passed. But Stephen's speech in Acts 7.23 tells us that, that this event of Moses coming to and visiting his brothers happened when he was 40 years old. Now, one thing I want to note right off the bat as we look at this section, is how it clearly shows us the sinfulness of the people. The people were sinners. Moses himself is a sinner. When we, when we speak of Exodus being of a, a, a book about God preserving and delivering his people, we know that he will do this in spite of themselves. Indeed, the true enemy from which they would need deliverance would prove to be their own sin. And I think we see evidence of this sin problem even in our text in a number of ways. We see it in verse 13 uh, as these, we see these two Hebrews struggling together, it says. One evidently even striking his companion. Verse 13, that word strike there, it's the very same word used in verse 11 of the Egyptian striking a Hebrew. So here were the people that be being oppressed by cruel Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and yet it seems that they were also oppressing each other. Why do you strike your companion, Moses asks them. They were acting as, as enemies of each other. And, uh, as Stephen points out in his martyrdom speech, Acts 7, it was also evidence of their hardness of heart that they were opposing the very one whom the Lord was raising up as his uh, instrument of salvation. Indeed, we know that, that what we see here in opposing Moses, that's not the last time that we'll see the people rising up in rebellion against rejecting God's servant Moses, and in so doing, rejecting the Lord. They would show themselves to be a sinful, rebellious people. But so also did Moses show himself so to be, didn't he? We, we, we know, of course, that's true. We know that in the end it would be Moses' own sin which would disqualify him from leading the people into the promised land. But I think here we see it in his adulthood, or much earlier, earlier adulthood. I think it's easy for us to forget that when we think about the life of Moses here, the very first event, the first episode that we know of his adult life, he shows himself to be a murderer. Moses the murderer. Granted, it, it happened in a context in which he was coming out of concern for his people, and we certainly will, of course, speak to that. But that does not justify the killing of the Egyptian. I think he reacted rashly, hastily, certainly did not wait upon the Lord. In some sense, I think we can say that he was uh, acting as if he were the judge, the jury, and the executioner. He did not just repay evil with evil, as if that wouldn't have been bad enough. No, he, paid, he repaid evil with much worse evil. The, the, the Egyptian was the one doing the beating. Moses did the killing. Certainly, it did not reflect the justice which he would be called to execute as Israel's judge. No wonder he did not try to defend his action as morally upright. 
Instead, look what he did in the text. We read that, that he looked both ways while no one was watching. That, that language has been interpreted differently, but I think it's very clear. Moses was trying to hide his wicked deed, looking both ways so that no one would see, and then trying to destroy the evidence, as it were, by burying the body. It was a, a, a wicked deed. And as far as consequences go, we see that, that he served to alienate himself, not only from Pharaoh, but also from his own people. And so in preserving and delivering the life of Moses from Pharaoh, I think the Lord was, was really saving Moses even from the consequences of his own sin. The Lord's servant, the Lord's great instrument of deliverance was one who himself needed deliverance deliverance from his own sin. Now, all of that in in no way denies, but should cause us to to marvel all the more at the amazing work which God did through Moses. Moses was indeed a sinner, but look how God used him. By the way, that should encourage us this evening as we marvel at the, the amazing transforming grace of God, how murderers can even be turned into wonderful servants of the Lord. What good news. It certainly was good news, by the way, when I would tell the story to, to the Karamajong in Africa, that, that cattle raiding violent people, many of them had murder in their past, and it was powerful to be able to make the point that some of the greatest servants of the Lord had committed the sin of murder. I could tell the, the, the story of Moses, the murderer saint. What a testimony to the grace of Christ, the one who by his blood covers over all of our sins and presents us as faultless before God. And even our works, the sin notwithstanding, even our works are, are acceptable and useful to God. I think that's, that's reflected very powerfully in this story, particularly as we think again uh, at the way the New Testament would look back on these events in the life of Moses and Moses himself. I'm gonna, I want us to look at a few verses in the book of Hebrews. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, if you'd like to turn there to see this yourselves, Hebrews chapter 11. Again, note, note how these actions of Moses are viewed by the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit. Hebrews 11 and verse 24 and following. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 24, says... By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now keep your finger there, but, but notice, isn't it amazing that the, the murder here is not even mentioned? That doesn't justify his act of murder. It's, it was reprehensible, indefensible, but Moses certainly is a complex individual. Yes, he blew it, but, but here we see that his going to his people in the first place was motivated by true faith, not perfect faith. Moses was a sinner, but motivated by model faith. Like the other Hebrews 11 saints of old, here we see that Moses is set, has held forth an ex, as an example of faith, an example of those who lived their lives looking to those things hoped for, looking to those, those things not seen, looking to him who is invisible. I don't know how much Moses understood at this point in his life, 
but evidently he did understand something of, of, of God and his covenant promises to his people. He knew that God would be faithful to his people. He understood, it seems. He understood that their present sufferings, notwithstanding, God had such great things in store for his people, an inheritance greater than all of the wealth of Egypt. Moses could have, have clung to his status as a prince of Egypt. Instead, what did he do? He forsook the glory of Egypt and chose instead to identify with the covenant people in their sufferings. And the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit, tells us that in so doing, he was choosing the reproach, the sufferings, choosing the reproach of Christ. Back to Hebrews chapter 11. If you look at verse 27, it continues, and it says, By faith he left Egypt, notice this, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So apparently that initial moment of fear we read about in verse 14 of our text is not in the end what caused him to flee Egypt. He he left Egypt and went to Midian, motivated not by fear, but in faith. He was looking to the same Lord, the same one who had delivered him from death in his infancy, and the same Lord delivered him from death out of Egypt. And this was a great work, a prelude to what the Lord would do through Moses in delivering his people out of Egypt. There's more I want to say about the second section here, but I want to do so as we then move to the last Section which really speaks, as kind of as I began, it speaks to the reason which God was doing all this. Our last point this evening, what was the reason? Here we focus in again on the Lord's great compassion, his mercy. Our third point is that the covenant God hears the groaning of his people. He hears the groaning of his people. So we look at this last section, verses 23 through 25, and this kind of concludes the last, uh, concludes the first section of Exodus, the first two chapters. As one commentator notes, this kind of forms an important bridge between the opening chapters and the message of, uh, of the rest of the book, all that follows. It reminds us that, that Israel is suffering. Uh, 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 the king has died, but that has not changed their circumstances. They continue to groan. They continue to cry out for rescue. But note this, as one writer notes, for the first time, the focus is on God's reaction to that cry. Up to this point, there have been brief allusions to God's concern for his people, but only now does the narrator specifically mention God's awareness of the people's suffering, of the Israelites' suffering. How does God respond? I want you to look at this, both for what it teaches us about who God is and teaches us how we ought to then respond to this revelation of God's character. Four words, four verbs. I want us to think on these four words and learn of our God this evening. Children, you can learn these words. Parents, you can quiz the children even on their way home. You ought to be able to memorize this. What are they? God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. So verse 24 says, and God heard their groaning. God hears. This might recall for us 
the, the story of, the, of God and his dealing with uh, Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis chapter 16. Remember when Sarai had dealt harshly, ironically, Sarai dealt harshly with the Egyptian slave or servant, right? Hagar, and Hagar had fled from her, but we read that God heard. God heard Hagar and blessed her with and made promises concerning that son Ishmael. And do you remember what the name of Ishmael means? It means God hears. He is indeed a God who hears. Back to our text. Not only does God hear, verse 24 continues, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Of course, when the Bible says that God remembered, it doesn't mean, you know, he'd kind of forgotten and suddenly, oh, that's right, I'm remembering. Now, the idea here is God has, has purposely called to mind and is acting in fulfillment of his covenant promise. He will do what he has promised. We might think of the flood, Genesis chapter 8, where it says that God remembered Noah and all those in the ark with him. Or Genesis 19, verse 29, when, when God had destroyed Sodom and those other cities, but we read how he, he remembered Abraham, remembered Abraham, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Or Genesis chapter 30, when Rachel was barren, but it says that God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened his, her womb. He is the God who hears the God who remembers, again, back to our text, we see as well, he is, he's the God who sees. Verse 25, that God, it says that God saw the people of Israel. But back in the, the uh, Genesis chapter 16, uh, Hagar and Ishmael text, we're told of Hagar that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. And then that well was called Bear Lahoy Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he's the God who knows. And so our text concludes with those words, and God knew. And God knew, of course, that, that word knew is rich. The, the Hebrew word, it has, it's the idea of, of, of God's intimate knowledge of his people, his love for his people, his covenant relationship with his people. God said of Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19, for I have chosen, or same word, or known him. The prophet would later say of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. And note this, the way this, this section ends here. The book of Exodus began with that sad historical fact that there had risen that new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, here the opening section ends by saying the king didn't know, but God knew. God knew Israel was suffering, feeling like they were forgotten, humanly speaking. Long gone was that Pharaoh who loved Joseph and loved his people, but the faithful, unchanging Lord, the God of Israel, he had not forgotten. He had not forgotten his covenant. He had not forgotten his people. Indeed, God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. And as I mentioned earlier, these are wonderful words, I think, not only to teach us about what this God is like, but words of application for us as we think about what, what duty God requires of us, 
what will it look like for you and for me to walk in covenant in faithfulness, covenant faithfulness before our faithful God? Well, we will we will hear or we will listen. We will listen well to him who is the shepherd of Israel. We will do so because by God's grace, praise God, we are in him who is the shepherd of Israel, union with Christ. Don't miss how wonderfully the, 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 the work of Christ, the person and work of Jesus, the good shepherd, is typified here by Moses. Note the marvelous way in which God prepares Moses to be the one who will shepherd his people, lead them out of Egypt. We even see this in his exile, his flight to Midian, just like Jesus who has, who has gone before us in the exodus of his own death and resurrection, Moses first experiences his own exodus as he goes to Midian. And note in Midian how God prepares Moses for the work that he will do in saving Israel from Pharaoh, even shepherding the people by making him an instrument of salvation, even there in Midian for the daughters of rule. Verse 17 tells us that Moses stood up, and what did he do? He saved them and watered their flock it's repeated in verse 19 where we're told that he delivered, delivered them out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for them and watered their flock. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, isn't it the way Moses is uh, intervening and shepherding efforts were much better received there in Midian than they initially were received among his own people back in Egypt. Note also how in Midian the Lord prepares Moses to teach the people about their pilgrim status. He settles there. Uh, He even marries. He even has a son. But what's the name of the son? Gershom. Why the name Gershom? The text tells us, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So it is for Moses and Midian. So it is for the people of Israel in Egypt. Moses learned and he would teach his people to learn that their home, their identity would not be in Midian, not in Egypt, but with the God of Israel and with that inheritance which he was preparing for them. And as his pilgrim people, as the people of the covenant, they surely would be called to be a people who would hear, who would remember, who would see, who would know, hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord would command them. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Remember, how many times would the Lord command his people to remember? Remember that you were slaves. Remember that I redeemed you. Remember my works. Remember my laws. Remember my commandments. Remember. My covenant. See, repeatedly, God would tell his people uh, to respond by, by seeing, as it were. Have you not seen what I've done? Seeing him, seeing his promises, seeing his commandments. See, God would say, I have set before you today life and good. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. No, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and is there is no other besides him, Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 35. And in fact, didn't we, didn't we hear it in the, the scripture reading this evening? What did David tell Solomon? Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Know the God of your father and serve him with a willing heart and with a whole heart. If God's 
people of old, this old covenant, if they were called so to do, how much more ought we, we who are the children of the new covenant? They were, and you and I are called to hear, to remember, to see, and to, uh, to, to know. We're called to love, we're called to walk with, we're called to trust the Lord. We're called to trust the Lord, even amidst our trials, which, by the way, we heard, uh, heard about this morning. God is a kind Father who gives good gifts, and we ought to believe that in the way that we pray. I think we're reminded again this evening. Are you groaning this evening? Are you suffering under various trials, maybe difficult, difficult circumstances in your life? And maybe, like Israel, maybe you're tempted, tempted to doubt that God truly is hearing, that he's remembering, that he's seeing, that he's knowing. Does this not remind us of God's compassion to us, God's presence with us, if God's steadfast love, if God's faithfulness, if his abundant compassion was proven so powerfully by what he was doing and raising up Moses, even in this text, how much more has been proven for us? We're not like Miriam standing at the edge of the, the Nile River and waiting to see what will happen to this child. We know what happens. We know the story. Given over to death for our sins, but raised up. He's our savior. He's our great intercessor. He's the high priest, and he hears, and, and he remembers, and he sees, and he knows. He's there to help us in all of our weaknesses. Is God's compassion not abundant to you this evening? Does your cup not overflow with his mercy, his love, and his compassion? And indeed, by way of further application, is it not sufficient and overflowing to flow through you into the lives of your brothers and sisters? Ought we not for one another to be those ones who hear and who remember and who see and who know? So much we could say by way of application, but surely if if God has had such, some, such compassion and love and seen us and saved us and helped us in every way, are we not to be the same, do the same for our brothers and sisters? I want to just conclude this evening with one, one more by way of application. A New Testament text, Paul's letter to Titus, and I invite you to turn there if you'd like to see it with me. Titus chapter 3, I'm just going to read verses 3 through 5. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, says this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Note this. This is the kind of slavery in which we as sinners by nature found ourselves. It says, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, and as you note what it says here, I think it's pictured so well by, by these Israelites fighting against each other, one striking his companion. There they were, slaves being oppressed by Pharaoh, but even oppressing one another. What does Paul write? He writes, hated by others and hating one another. See, that's what we were. That's what we were by nature as sinners. Hated, haters of God, hating one another. But what did God do? Verse 4 continues, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's the mercy. There's the compassion of God to us in Christ. And what does it say next? What ought to be our response? The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Dear Christians, we were, we were, we were slaves. We were in bondage. We were serving a cruel master, and we were bound, bound to, to, to receive the wages of our sin, even death itself. But how has God responded? He's come to us. He's come to us in in that one who is the only redeemer of God's elect, Jesus Christ. He has, indeed, he has heard, he has remembered, he has seen, and he has known us. And by his grace, he calls us to believe in every way he calls us to. Let Let us be those, indeed, who hear, who remember, who see, who know. By God's grace, let us be so for one another. Let us, let us love our God and love one another in every way. Loving one another, let us walk before him in all covenant faithfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess this evening that we are not able to do so of ourselves, but we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your compassion. We praise you for your love and your covenant faithfulness. We praise you, Lord God, for him who is our faithful, covenant-keeping Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And we would plead with you uh, this evening to come to us once again, Lord God. Come and bless us. Pour out your Spirit upon us. Even the word which we have heard this day, we pray that as we go from this place, that it would fill us and dwell in us, and that you would use that work to change us and to make us more and more like him, Christ Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.